the sermon for St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church, member of the Wells, preached on October 10th, 2010. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God, through which the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith in Jesus, is the Gospel for today, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, It's impossible for death traps not to come, but woe to him through whom it comes. It would be better for him if a millstone had been laid around his neck and he had been thrown into the sea, than that he would set a death trap for one of the little ones. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord said, If you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea it would have obeyed you. Who of you, if you had a slave plowing or shepherding, would say to him when he comes in from the field, Come here and sit back at once? Rather, wouldn't you say to him, Prepare my supper and dress to serve me until I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. He wouldn't thank the servant for doing what was commanded, would he? So also you. When you have done everything commanded of you, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what we ought to do. This is the word of our Lord. Dear fellow saints, washed clean in the blood of our risen Savior. Mustard seeds. They're quite tiny, very small, and yet they come in a lot of different varieties. You've got white mustard, yellow mustard, black mustard, and more. And so you can imagine how people debate what kind of mustard plant Jesus had in mind when he talked about faith as small as a mustard seed. One of the leading contenders is the black mustard plant, the Brassica nigra. It can grow over to 15 feet tall from such a tiny seed. And yet, we're not here today for a horticultural lesson. As we think about that tiny mustard seed here, here is the question, dear friends, for us to think about. Where do we find the power in a mustard seed? It's not in its size, is it? It's what's on the inside. That's where we find the life and power in in any kind of seed, in that embryonic plant, that germ of of, of a plant that is ready to grow. And so also, the power of faith is not in its size, but in the promise that that faith holds on to. For you see, the promise is what brings faith its strength and life, the promise, 
God's word of promise. That's like that embryonic plant. That's where you find the life in faith, the promise that it holds on to. For you see, faith is only as good as its promise. The heart and core of faith, the the life within us, is the promise, just like that germ of, of a plant is the life inside the seed. The promise. Keep that in mind as we think about and take to heart these words of Jesus in Luke 17. For you see, Jesus lays out before us some rather difficult things. Some rather difficult things we do as Christians in order to help others spiritually. And and the first thing he talks about is something that we dare not do. We dare not lead someone else into a fatal sin. Jesus says here, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. The word that's used there is the Greek word skandala which the King James translates, offenses. But the idea behind that word is is much deeper than simply offending someone or or leading them into this or that sin. the, The picture in this word we talked about a year ago when we had a sermon on Mark chapter 9 and we used a mousetrap to illustrate that word. For that Greek word talks about that trigger on a death trap. Jesus is warning us not to tempt others into sin like cheese on a, on a trigger tempts the mouse so that they fall from faith. But you see, that is a very tragic circumstance for someone, especially a little one, that has just come to know Jesus to be caught in a death trap, to be lured into willful sinning and fall from faith. That That's a grave danger. Because without faith, there is no heaven, no eternal life for that person, only death and hell and the unending torture of its flames. No wonder Jesus warned so strongly against and saying that it would be better that someone drown in a horrible death with, a, with a, a millstone around their neck before they could actually lead someone into such a faith-destroying sin, such a death trap. Now, what is it that causes that kind of death trap? Well, there's, there's two broad categories here we could talk about. False teaching and false living. Both can be a death trap for faith. For you see, since the power of faith is in the promise, and false teaching distorts or destroys God's promise, false teaching kills faith. And in the same way, since faith trusts God's promise and therefore wants to serve God, willful sinning also destroys faith. And so a a false kind of living that says to people, see, you can do what you want and still call yourself a Christian and uh, is is a way of, of leading people into that kind of death trap, thinking that they can willfully sin and still be right with God. Jesus warns us against those death traps. Watch yourself, he says. And then he goes on here, doesn't he? He not only warns us against causing these death traps, but then he also presents some positive things we can do to help our fellow Christians, to spiritually help others. He says here, if your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. Remember, we just talked about how willful sinning destroys faith. And so it's not only that we do not want to lead others into such willful sinning. If we see them wandering into that kind of willful, unrepentant sinning, we want to warn them. That's what he says here, isn't it? If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. We warn and rebuke with that heartfelt desire to bring them to repentance so that we can forgive them. But how difficult that is. Notice how how Jesus is talking about warning against any kind of sin that is not repented of. He isn't limiting it to only when someone sins against you. You know, when we are personally hurt by someone's sin, we often find it quite easy to rebuke them, don't we? Maybe not with the right kind of attitude, but it's sort of natural that when we feel hurt, we uh, rebuke, even as we are trying to express our anger and upsetness. But Jesus says, it's not only in those situations. If your brother sins, your fellow Christian, whatever that sin might be, as long as there is no repentance, rebuke him. Rebuke him with that goal of leading him to forgiveness. Maybe a way for us to illustrate this is if you saw a baby crawling towards a mousetrap, what would you do? Even if it's not your baby or your mousetrap or your house, you're going to take action. How much more so when a fellow brother or sister in the faith is crawling towards that death trap that will harm them or destroy them spiritually. And yet, how difficult this is, isn't it? For we are not to rebuke them with a proud attitude that puffs myself up and pushes them down. And on the other hand, we aren't to keep quiet, thinking, well, who am I to say anything here? That's that's a false humility. We're not to nitpick, calling something a sin that is not a sin. And as soon as there is repentance, we are to forgive and uh, and not belabor the point with them if they are living in faith, if they are living in daily repentance, we dare not harp on their sins. We dare not confront a repentant person as if their forgiveness isn't really there. How difficult this is. And maybe you can think of times where you did confront someone, where you rebuked sin. And even after we have done it, uh, sometimes we we wonder whether we did the right thing. Maybe the person didn't pay any attention and we did did we speak the right words? Were we clear enough? Were we stern enough? How much time do I give them? Do I need to talk to them again? And maybe other times we realize they did get the message because they reacted hostily back towards us. And then we wonder, well, what was I... I, I being arrogant in what I said to them? Was I unduly harsh? What Jesus says so simply, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. We struggle through a lifetime to put into practice 
Is it any wonder that the disciples called out in a little while, increase our faith? But before we get to that cry from the disciples, Jesus has a little bit more to say about forgiveness. For you see, God's promise is all about forgiveness, his forgiveness towards us. For you see, in Christ, God has worked out full and free forgiveness for you and me because of the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for our sins there on the cross. Unconditional forgiveness toward us from God. That, that's the promise that faith holds on to. That's the life inside the mustard seed faith. What a death trap when we distort that message by not forgiving others, or or making our forgiveness towards them conditional. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Notice how now Jesus does make it personal, because that's when it's hardest for us to forgive, isn't it? When a brother or sister in the faith has hurt us, when they have wronged us or betrayed us, cut out our heart or stomped on it when it's personal. Then it is so hard to forgive. But Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him freely, unconditionally. Forgive him just as in Christ. God has forgiven you. Think of how many times each and every day we sin against God. And yet he gave you his son. And through the Son, we have the forgiveness of that entire debt of sin. No matter how huge it is, you are forgiven. And so, we forgive our fellow Christians who sin against us. How difficult that is. No wonder the disciples called out, increase our faith. And and we join them in that plea, that cry, increase our faith. And what's Jesus' answer? Well, I think at first his answer leaves us scratching our heads. At least it, it, it does for me. Here we're calling out, increase our faith. And Jesus talks about, about mustard seeds and a mulberry tree planted in the sea and, and slaves serving their master. What kind of answer is that? Well, before we dismiss this as, well, that's too hard for me to understand. Let's just move on. You know, if you think about it, Jesus' words are quite straightforward here. It's not so much that they're hard to understand, it's we don't really like what they're saying. But let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He knows what the root of the problem is. The disciples heard all that Jesus was talking about, 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 about not leading others into a death trap, about rebuking and forgiving What do you think was going on in their minds as they heard Jesus describe such difficult things? What was going on in your mind? Were you thinking to yourself, how can I ever do something like that? I I just don't have that, that kind of character, that kind of determination, that kind of strength. My faith isn't big enough to do those things. If If I try, I'm just going to fail anyway. But do you notice what that kind of thinking is focused on? How can I do it? 
Where can I find the strength? How great is my faith? The focus is on myself, isn't it? And Jesus' answer makes us stop looking at ourselves. You think your faith is too small? Well, listen to what Jesus says. Even a mustard seed-sized faith that you have can accomplish the impossible. So the problem isn't in the size of the faith. It doesn't depend on your inner strength. It doesn't depend on how big you imagine your faith to be. It doesn't depend on your worthiness or self-worth. This really goes exactly opposite of our natural way of thinking and what the world keeps telling us. Because here Jesus leads us to see that we are unworthy servants. Even if we did all perfectly, never laying a death trap for anyone, always rebuking and correcting sin properly. Even then. And we've only done our duty. We've only done what's been rightfully expected of us. We are still unworthy servants who can claim no credit, no thanks. How contrary to popular thinking Jesus' words are. For what does the world say? That if you want people to accomplish great things, whether that's winning a football game or doing well at work or raising a good family or being a productive member of the community or their congregation, what does the world say? It says you've got to build them up. You've got to encourage their inner strength and get them to look deep inside, to reach for the stars, to dream big, to dig deep inside. You've heard that all before. How contrary Jesus' words are just... Listen again to that story Jesus told and see how that kind of world thinking fits. Suppose one of you had a servant. The literal word here is slave. You know, someone totally owned by someone else, plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant for, uh, because he did what he was told to do? No, of course not. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And then Jesus stops. He sort of leaves us hanging there, doesn't he? He crushes our self-worth. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty, and then he ends it. So where does the strength and power come from? Where do we find a hope and confidence to go on? Jesus doesn't answer that question here, does he? Because the disciples know the answer, and so do you. The power of faith is not in its size, but in the promise that God has made. The strength of faith does not come from inside you, but from the word of promise that God has spoken to you. He owes us nothing. Just like that master in Jesus' story owed the servants, the slaves, nothing. But look what your God has done for you nonetheless. 
He gave you His Son. Yes, while we were still slaves, not doing our duty, He gave us His Son. While we were still unworthy, worthless servants and slaves, He put an infinite value on you because He paid the price of the blood of Christ for you, the holy, precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross for you. He brought us who were slaves to sin into His family through the water and word so that you are no longer a slave but a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what God did for us while we were still working for Satan. What grace! And that same God, dear friends, who did such great things for you, is still at work in you. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Does that not cause you and me to tremble in holy fear and awe? Unworthy servants that we are, nonetheless the Almighty is at work in you. How astounding! Doesn't he have the power to work in us so that we do not lay death traps for others? Doesn't he have the power to work in us so that we rebuke and forgive as God wants us to? Yes, yes, of course he has that power. And he wants to work those good works in you and in me. Now, are we going to say, well, thanks God, but no thanks, I'm going to do this on my own, I'm going to get enough faith so I can do this my way? Or are we going to cry out and pray, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That, dear friends, is a mustard seed faith. That is your faith. What great Things the power of God's promise will accomplish through you. Amen. Please stand. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.